I think about that song, you reflect on getting older and what really matters. How do you really leave your mark in life? Often for me, it's times of reflection in nature that I feel closest to God. And and maybe you'd say the same thing, that, that you're not sure about Jesus, you're not sure about the Bible, but when you're out bass fishing, when you're out skiing on some fresh powder, that's where you feel this connection to the light, to a higher purpose, to asking those questions like, who am I and what really matters? Do you see your kids getting older? As I have two teenagers, I begin to say, you know, I'm no longer just telling them what to do or teaching them what to do. I'm now modeling what to do. I know for Beth and I, we take our kids every week. We have a family movie night. And so part of our family movie night is we go to a movie together. We critique it together. We laugh together. uh, We have dinner together. And then we just talk about our lives. And more and more I've said to our kids, I said, you know, I hope what you've seen in mom and dad, especially the last four or five years, is that we're trying to own and model what we say. You know, we screw up, we apologize. We make mistakes, we try and own it. We try and have the adventures with God and facing our own fears and facing our own shame and facing our own dysfunction. I hope you're seeing us deal with that. Not perfectly by any stretch, but I hope you're seeing us. the, the, the life we're describing to you is the life we're trying to live out. And I hope you see five years ago, it'd be a lot easier not to have adopted a special needs son. But Quinn's been in our part of family, and it's all hard, right? Everybody, it's all hard. But you have seen what God's done in us and trying to say we want to be a community and we want to reach out and we want to love those who have been forgotten by others. And we just had this great chat. This was right before we were heading to a, a trip to Israel and Turkey. So we went to Israel for about a week and then Turkey for about a week. And we took the kids out to Red Lobster the, the week before we left because it's my daughter's favorite place. And as we're sitting there, I said, listen, I want you to know that there's a, we've checked into this. It's going to be safe. But there's a lot of people saying, why are you going? Uh, should we have a lot of fear? I want you to know that we're choosing to, to trust God. We've waited out, decided it's the right decision for us. Um, but I said, you know, this might be our last dinner together. <laughs> and, uh, and we had the best time laughing, telling stories, and yet honestly talking about what if, what if we didn't come back? And, and, how would we want you to still trust God even if tragedy occurred? And, and as we were uh, having dinner and cracking crab legs, because I just love snow crab legs, um, the wait- waitress came by and she said, can I ask you guys, what is going on over here? And I said, what do you mean? She goes, you guys are having more fun. There's more laughter going on. I don't see a lot of teenagers you know, actually interacting with their parents, let alone laughing with them. And, and yet I hear you talking about the last supper. This might be our last meal. We may never see you again. I've never seen this dichotomy of joy and sorrow. And I just described you know, what we were going, the trip we were heading on. And, and for me, that's important because I want to model for my, for my kids my values. And if you say, well, I'm not sure about the Jesus, God, Bible thing, but all of us want to pass on values to our kids, and it's about modeling that. And for me, what I want to talk about today in this motor series is shifting into high gear, sparking a legacy of action by really shifting ourselves to the next stage. And for that, the shift I want to describe today is the shifting from a gated community to a community at the gates mindset. That instead of just keeping our whole lives insulated and protected, and there's nothing wrong with being protected and nothing wrong with being safe, but instead of just having a gated community mindset, how do we shift to a community at the gates mindset? That I'm about impacting the world and feeling a burden on my life, something breaking my heart and being part of it. So I want to look at some city gates, I want to look at some starting gates, and I want to look at how to storm the gates. And I hope that if you have that, that desire to be part of a grander purpose, that you want your life to really matter, that you want to model for your kids, if you want to know that I'm doing what God would want me to do, even if you're not sure who God is yet, by studying these three things, I hope that it will help you give a sense of maybe a greater call, a greater burden that God might have you impact the world and tap into something unique he's put in you. 
Let's start by talking about city gates. City gates, uh, all through the Bible, when God told people to build a city, uh, part of the city would have walls. It would be a gated community because that gave protection from, from uh, evildoers. It gave protection from animals. So having a gated community offered protection. It was a protection for everyone, really. It was a protection for the rich, the poor, the middle class, the low class, the no class, the upper class. It was a gated community. And yet the first impression you had as you came into the city, and here would be an outlet, so from the top down, uh, you would walk in this direction right here. This would be the front door. That would be coming in right this direction. As soon as you walked in, you'd see little pockets to the left and to the right, to the left and to the right. And as soon as you came in the city gates, you would experience a place where there would be uh, judges there. And judges, if you had, didn't have access to the law, whether you're rich or poor, everyone had access to the law equally. If you came in with needs to the family, immediately there would be folks at the city gate who would be your community. What do you need? How can we help? What's going on? What are, the, what are the provisions you need? What are you lacking? How can we help? Your first impression of God's city was a place where people were cared for. There was a gated community which protected you. That was good. But more than that, your first impression is, wow, there's a community at the gates who cares about me, who's looking after me. I think this is so important. In fact, as we've been doing the series Motor, and two people this week came up and just said, of all the series we've done, I've loved Motor the most. Like, Really? Why is that? I love the idea of challenging us to go and make a difference in the world and to let God spark something in you to go and help other people. To be a community at the gates for the world. So a verse in Proverbs that describes this, but it's all over the place. That when the poor come into the gates, do not rob the poor because he's poor, nor oppress the afflicted at the gates. So the gates are really critical. Here's another uh, artist's rendering of what it would look like as you come in the gates. Right here, there might be a first floor and a second floor, and you see these little rooms to the left or to the to the left over here, and vice versa to the right. There'll be a second story up here, and there'll be supplies provided there, uh, assessing people's needs individually, checking out what they need and how can we provide, how can we take care of you. And then, as your needs were taken care of, or maybe your needs you didn't have any needs, you'd walk by and go, "Wow, welcome to the city! I'm so glad I'm part of a community that takes care of other people's needs." And when you said, "But what makes this place tick around here?" What, what is it that drives our city? You'd hear people say, oh, we serve a God who loves helping the oppressed. We serve a God who helped us when we were oppressed, so we want to do the same. There would just be this aura of conversation about what it is that motivates us, the why behind our what, being a community in the gates. Well, I got a chance to visit one of these uh, uh, city gates uh, a couple weeks ago when I was in Israel. And as we came in through the main gate, you can see to the left and to the right these different sections you could turn in. I'll show you a little bit different picture of it. The front gate coming in this direction. You're about to walk in the front gate. And then you walk in and you turn to your right. And this is what one of those little alcoves would look like. It says right here on the sign, city gates. In this particular city gate, this is where supplies would be stored. This is where, where you would find people gathering. Hey, what can I help you with? What are your needs? How can we help you? Those are right there at the city gate. Well, this particular uh, archaeological find that we are walking around in is from an area called Geshur. So if you know your Old Testament, and most of us, you know, it's too hard to understand, so let me sort of remind you. Uh, King David, who killed Goliath, has a son named Absalom. Absalom tries to overthrow his dad, and it doesn't work out real well um, any time, but he ends up running. Absalom runs away, and he ends up running to this place called Geshur. So this is the actual location where Absalom was hiding out in Geshur. Well, Geshur became a place that began to skew the city gates. Instead of caring for the poor and giving, putting God on display and making God get the priority of life, it became all about them. And then they turned over to another God, and this God was called Baal. So when people came in the city gates and saw people provided for, they'd say, what's this all about? They'd say, well, it's all about the Baal. 
So sitting at the city gates was this giant uh, statue, but so tall, an idol to the god Baal. And you would put your sacrifice right there at his, at his feet, and you would uh, say, wow, Baal's what makes the city work. And you would have the poor provided for, and you would have some justice, and then you'd go to temple worship, a Baal worship later, and you'd find out the Baal wanted you to throw your kids into the fire. Oh. And that was part of the worship. And they began to distort the city gates. Instead of it being about God and peace and harmony and compassion and self-sacrifice, it became about worshiping this God that actually demanded you to kill off your children. And Baal worship became so bad that after many, many years, God allowed the, the, the nation of Babylon, if you remember your history, Babylon comes in and crushes Judea or, or Judah, and this particular archaeological find got destroyed for 70 years during the Babylonian exile. Then the Persians come along and conquer the Babylonians, and when the Persians come along, they say, we don't have any problem with the Hebrews who are living here, so they send the Hebrews back to their homeland. We're about to catch up, so stay with me. So... The Hebrews leave and they come back to the Sea of Galilee where Jesus lived. And they decide to build a small community right on top of the ruins of this city that got destroyed because they distorted the city gates. Because when you distort the city gates, you shut the, the, the gates to God's purposes in your life. When you begin to make your life about yourself, not about him. You make your life about, about me, me, me versus him. Something gets distorted and your inner purpose and what God has planned for you gets distorted. So this community comes back and they build right on top. So if, this, if my podium was the entire archaeological find, this is the city gate. But there's a whole city. This community built right on top of the ruins. And so just on the same layout, they built the city. And they decided they were going to study the Bible and try and as best they could know what it was to put God on display and what it meant for them in the midst of that to care for the poor and to be city gates. So if you walk down the path from this very location, I get to walk down a path about 50 feet away, you come to a place called Bethsaida. It's right Bethsaida, right Bethsaida, the, uh, the city gates we just looked at. And this community built right on top of that section that got demolished. They decided they were going to be committed to trying to care for the poor and the needy. Well, this very path is a path that Jesus will walk down into Bethsaida. It's mentioned twice in the book of, uh, in the, the New Testament. And he'll come across a, a winemaker's house. They found here, here are the walls, what's left of the walls on the outside. It would look like this in the day. This is where a winemaker would live, in this real small community. If you walk a little bit further, you'll find the archaeological finds of the fisherman's house. And here's what a fisherman's house would look like with all the nets. This little town of Bethsaida is right there on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus will walk up this very path on this community, built on top of the ruins of a group that just distorted God's purposes, and he will find most of his disciples in this little Bitty town. He walked by the Sea of Galilee and he saw Simon, also known as Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And he had gone a little farther and he found James, the son of Zebedee, and John. So this little bitty town in the middle of nowhere, Jesus will find disciples that will literally change the world. And we will be here today because of them. And they came from this little bitty town and this little bitty spot built on the ruins of a city from the Old Testament. Later in the book of John, he picks up a couple more disciples while he's there. The following day, Jesus went to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And here Jesus takes this small group of nobodies from the middle of nowhere, near a lagoon in the Sea of Galilee, and says, I want to teach you how to be city gates, to be a community at the gates in the world, and to spread this message of my love and my forgiveness and my compassion to the world. 
So with that as the city gate vision he gives them, he then says, but let me tell you what the starting gate is. The starting gate for your journey into this process, the spark that happens in you, the motivation that gets the motors running, is starting with the question, who is Jesus? So he takes them to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, Philippi, uh, Philip Herod wasn't real bright. So he built this town called Caesarea, and then he finds out that there was already a town nearby called Caesarea. So he's like, oh, that's embarrassing. So he changes the name to Caesarea Philippi, so it's his Caesarea. Now, here was a place where there's a giant cave right behind this uh, temple is a giant cave where there was an underground cavern that water just came bursting out of. And that water was a supply chain for that city. And that was known as the place where the god, the Greek god Hades lived. And so this Greek god Hades lived right there, and that was his temple. Next door was another Greek god, Pan, where they would worship him right here in this section. Incredible immorality, just disgusting, make your face turn red multiple times. It's a lot like watching uh, primetime TV, actually. It's what it's a lot like, only even worse, because everybody's engaged in it. Jesus brings his disciples here to this location. And he says, the starting point for your journey is to ask the question, who do you think I am? Who do men say that I am, the Son of Man? They say, well, some think you're John the Baptist, some think you're Elijah, others Jeremiah, and one of the prophets. And he said, but who do you say that I am? I think that's probably one of the most important questions as I walk with people on their spiritual journey over the years that everyone will come to uh, wrestle with. Who is Jesus? Was he God? If he, if he really was God, and God really left the comfort and safety of heaven to come to earth to die for me, if that's true, that's a big deal. If he did that for me, shouldn't I go and go to dangerous places on behalf of other people who are oppressed? That I will pass on what he's done for me? If he's a good moral teacher, hey, I might want to follow it. But you need to wrestle with that question. Who is Jesus? C.S. Lewis uh, has got a quote. He was uh, asked one time, he's trying to get people to think about this idea that Jesus had to be more or less than a good moral teacher. Because some of the things he says are just phenomenal. I mean, Jesus will show up and say he can forgive sin. He will show up and claim to be God incarnate. I mean, this is either a guy who's absolutely nuts or somebody who actually is far more than a mortal man. Here's how C.S. Lewis says it. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to him with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Now, that might be offensive to you. And I don't mean if you're still if you think Jesus might be a good moral teacher, I don't mean to offend you. But ask the question, if I this morning said, hey, hopefully you've enjoyed coming to Horizon for the last couple of weeks, months, maybe years. Uh, hopefully you've gotten some good stuff out of some messages. But I do want you to know that uh, I do ask my, my wife and at least my kids to call me God. <laughs> and the staff. Well, and if you decide to, to, to join Horizon, that's sort of part of the membership. Is God chat is actually how I like to be known around here. Um, now, what is your reaction? Now, Chad's a good moral teacher. Now, you're going... Hmm. Is this a narcissist? Something's not right about this, right? And I'm telling you, Jesus claimed outrageous claims. And you've got to wrestle with that. And yet, a guy who makes these narcissistic claims lives this life of humility and service. He says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. 
you have this incredible dichotomy of bold, confident claims with incredible selfless humility. Who do you say he is? I was reading on a website called bethinking.org, and Philip Vander Else tells his story. He's a freelance lecturer, writer, journalist, and he grew up in a family who didn't really were exposed to religion. Uh, or at least they were exposed to it in the sense that it was a caricature, that he never believed that Jesus was who he says he was, the Bible was not intellectually true, the problem of evil was so surpassable that no intellectual person could believe in a good God in an evil world. And he began reading C.S. Lewis. Well, actually, what happened first is he started dating a Christian woman. And uh, she said that religion was important to him, her, so he didn't want to convert for her sake, but he thought, I at least look, I ought to look into this so I'm not being too harsh or mocking of something that's important to her. So he began to read C.S. Lewis, and, and he tells several of his journeys. He said C.S. Lewis, even though he wasn't convinced of everything, C.S. Lewis was an expert in what was true. He had studied Old Testament uh, myths, and he said the Bible is historically accurate. And he, he, C.S. Lewis, had moved from an atheist to a Christian. And as he began to lay out the case for the Bible being historically true, uh, Philip said, man, I began to see the facts, and I began to say, well, maybe it's not what I thought it was. As he began to lay out these arguments for who Jesus was, what he claimed to do, and how archaeological finds validated what he did and where he was at, he said, over time, I began to make this journey toward God and starting to say, well, I think Jesus might be real. I think he might be who he said he was. What does that mean for my life? And in the book of C.S. Lewis called The Problem of Pain, he lays out the Bible's answer to the problem of pain. And he said, that began to give me the final decent answer to the problem of why good things happen to bad people and why bad things happen to good people. And it was during this journey he came to conclude that Jesus is who he says he was. And for him, he became a follower of Christ. But more than that, once he became a follower of Christ, he began to see all the circumstances of his life just with a little bit different lens. You see, when you believe that you're made in God's image... And that God left heaven to come and, and fix what's broken in your image through self-centeredness or through whatever it is that you do wrong or whatever it is you don't do right. You begin to say, well, if God worked with me when my image was on, his image was on me, everyone I see was made in his image. Rich, poor, hurting, different cultures. I want to love other people that have God's image the same way God loved me. If you're in our hurdle series that we started about two months ago, we made an image of me, if you remember. I came up here dressed up like Spock, but we made a cardboard cutout of me. It's Spock Chad. And uh, Spock Chad, uh, there he is, there's Spock Chad. Uh, after the service, I brought it home because one of our creative arts directors, uh, my creative arts director said, hey, this is your wife's perfect version of you. He doesn't move and he doesn't talk. <laughs> so that's Spock Chad. So while I was gone in Turkey and Israel, um, my friend Matt took Spock Chad out, my image, and put him to work. So he was out doing some work. And I love that. I love the idea of putting people, made my image to work. I love that idea. And my book, Godnomics, is about work, so I love that. Uh, and then I got to the next uh, image on Facebook. And uh, Spock Chad had a tragic accident, unfortunately. Um, and he lost his head, and I was so offended that Spock Chad would have this tra tragic accident. And so now this is ongoing game to see how many ways we can put Spock Chad into dangerous situations. But see, what happens is is when you begin to think that every single human being is made in God's image and everyone matters, you begin to say, how I treat other people's image, the image of God, is how I treat God. And you begin to love and serve other people because they reflect God's image. And it begins to do something in you. It begins to change you. 
So before you're going to be city gates, the starting gate is, do I really believe that I'm made in God's image, that I have a creator? He has a purpose for me. Do I really believe that creator came to earth to, to help fix what's broken in me? And, and has he then called me to go and, and love on his image how I love him? And this begins to give you a whole new purpose for life. But you've got to start with that starting gate. Who is Jesus? Because once you have that down, then he encourages you to storm the gates. And where are the gates he encourages you to storm? So he's standing here at this section, give you a little perspective. This cave right here behind the temple, modern day, is this hole over here. So that's the cave. So it's coming in from an angle. So Jesus is standing there with his disciples, asking them, who do you say I am? And Peter blurts out, the same Peter who came from this little bitty podunk town of the city gates, just a ways away, says, well, I think you're not John the Baptist. I think you're not a good moral teacher. I think you're... The Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of the living God, the exact representation of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. You see this big old rock right here? Jesus was probably standing right here with his disciples. And as he's standing right there, do you know what this temple was called? Well, it's a temple to the god Hades. And the gate right behind it where the water came gushing out, you know what they called that? They called it the entrance to the underworld. Or another way to say it is they called it the gates of hell. So Jesus brings his disciples to a place called the gates of hell, a place filled with turmoil and chaos and immorality and destruction and devastation and social unrest. And he says, see that first question, who do you say I am? I think you might be the God who's come to to show us how to have peace in the midst of our broken lives. You got it. And upon that rock. In that area, in those places, if you will build a life based on this premise. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I want you to go to dark places and forgotten places and hurting places, and I want you to proclaim my message in the midst of it. Well, if that's true, then maybe my brother's not too crazy. See, my brother's a, a, a video producer in Hollywood, and he has always been drawn to helping hurting people. He called me up several years ago. He said, uh, Chad, what are you working on? I said, well, I'm working on this video project or that video project. He goes, well, I'm working on a video project. I said, well, what is it? He said, oh, I'm working on this financial um, video on how to handle your money for prostitutes. Uh, what's going on with you and your wife these days, uh, Ryan? Uh, he says, no, we found, I think he was living in Nashville at the time, for Hollywood. We found there's a lot of women who are caught in the prostitution um, Community and part of that lifestyle is that it's a pretty short-lived uh, career span, and people don't handle their money well. So a lot of people have come out of that community. They have found Christ. They found forgiveness. They found a new way of living, and we found that the best way we can impact these, these women and these these girls to sort of help show them peace and show help them that God loves them and cares for them. Maybe there's a different alternative. Is I've interviewed all these former prostitutes who've come to find Jesus as their forgiver and leader, and, and talk about how to handle their money. They are going into the, the communities and working with these young women and saying, hey, your felt need is financial management. We've been there. So Ryan said he's sitting there videotaping these former prostitutes and prostitutes, and they're having a good old time talking about, oh, you remember good old Sparky? Oh, yeah, one-legged. I remember him. And Ryan is like, this is a bizarre conversation. But he felt drawn to 
take this message of, of peace, this message of joy, this message of forgiveness to some of the places where typically people would shun. He felt called to these chaotic gates of hell places to help find women and take women who come out of that community and help reach back and help those before him. Last Easter, my son Quinn, his birth mother, uh, got pregnant again with her third child. And she was in a bad situation, so a couple of volunteers here from the church came up and got her out of that domestic violence situation together with great risk. We, we got her out of that. Um, we invited her to church. She actually came and stayed with us in her house for a week. And, oh, my goodness, you're talking about a week of chaos. Every night, my son, who's her son, too, um, Quinn, uh, he isn't used to having young kids around, so he hits young kids. So he is more worn out than normal. Uh, they're more worn out than normal. I remember every night that week we came and just collapsed in bed like, oh, this is God's work, huh? Helping people. It sounds so much better when you read it in a novel. See, helping people is very romanticized until you do it. It's hard work. It's sacrifice. And yet, I remember that week. And for the first time, uh, Jackie, uh, Quinn's middle name is Jackson, as a commemoration of his birth mother, Jackie's son. She got to hear the message of Jesus, and she got to see us trying to help with her and work with her and rescue her out of, out of a difficult situation. And, and God calls us to that. God calls us to the gates of hell to get involved in people's difficult situations to say, this is what God cares about you. And God, God's going to show how he cares about you through a community at the gate. That's what it's about. And God says, I want you to take this message and I want you to go to the gates of hell. And that's what happens. Now, here's what's amazing. So Philip's going to grow up. Jesus will die. He'll be raised from the dead. If you believe that, I believe it really happened. And that, that will be so impactful in his life that he will say, well, then my mission in life is to do what Jesus told me to do. I'm supposed to go to the gates of hell type places in the world. And I'm supposed to proclaim that, that Jesus can forgive you and help you and lead you. So he takes this bizarre journey. In fact, today, if you drove it, it would take you 24 hours of driving. So get in your car, you're going to drive 24 hours. So imagine his day. He's going to travel from Jerusalem, and he's going to make this wandering journey up to Laodicea in Turkey, a little place called the Heropolis. Why here? And he's going to go to this place with seven daughters, seven teenage daughters, and they're not all teenagers, but teenagers down, and he's going to take them to a far-off land, a place of incredible immorality, incredible difficulty. In fact, as you walk up to the Heropolis, here's what you're going to notice. One of the first things you come to is you see this is a massive Roman Greek city. Greeks built some of it. The Romans improved on it. You're going to come across these incredible, the Heropolis, these incredible baths. You're going to come upon an entrance to the city. You're going to see a giant theater. You're going to see in the background an area where there's a, for the sake of our conversation, a waterfall for right now. You're going to see an area here, which is a temple I'll talk about in just a moment. In fact, let me, I took some video work on my iPad to give you a feel for what it looks like. So imagine we're walking up here. And the first thing you notice as you come up to the Heropolis, you're Philip, you're there with the small Jewish community, you bring the message of Jesus, and you see these giant basilica baths, multiple ones. The water coming out of this is 122 degrees, directly from the, the earth. They found this hot water spring. And it's a military town meets Las Vegas. I mean, the Greek baths, the Roman baths, people are bathing there, men, women together. It's like total immorality going on. This is like the Vegas of its day. What happens in Heropolis stays in Heropolis. And as you come to this area, you come to the front gates. And this is the city gates. The crucifixion squad hangs out here. And there also is a city gate. But it doesn't protect you. The city gate tells you who's important. Because only the senators could walk through the city gates. And, and if you're the upper class, you could walk through the left or the right. But if you're the middle class or the lower class, you weren't allowed to walk through the city gates. The city gates were to tell you who's important and who's not. As you walk through the city gates, you'd look to your left. 
and you would find the, the latrine. And the latrine was only allowed for the upper class to use. Violins played in the latrine. You would invite somebody to come over and sit with you, and you'd do business in the latrine. This is where business deals got done. And then you'd walk up, and you're shocked to find what looks like it's still 70 degrees. You're still in the middle of Turkey. It looks like you just walked up to a ski slope. But it's not cold. Those are calcium deposits. That 122-degree water is pouring out calcium that's overflowing over the, the, the side of the rift, and it's creating these little pools of hot water. And then you're finding this giant theater where you're hearing the stories of the gods and how the gods have provided for our water and our immorality. And the gods have provided for all the things we have, all the things that you need. It's all here. If you look way up at the top, you see that little white section? That's where that waterfall is. And that waterfall, with all those calcium deposits, is coming from a little area just underneath the section we're at. A temple they have built to the god Pluto. And this temple, they built right on top of this massive hot water spring that went deep, deep into the ground. And it comes right out of that hole. If you walk over it, even today, you can still hear the waters rumbling. You can still smell the sulfur coming out of the water. In fact, as you smell it, as you hear it, you say, what is plutonium? And you realize the word Pluto is the Roman word for the god Hades, the Greek god Hades. And that they were teaching in this very place that this was the place that was the gateway to the underworld. This was the plutonium. This was literally the gates of hell. There's only two places in the world that are the gates of hell. One back in Caesarea Philippi and one here in Turkey. And so Philip takes his seven teenage daughters to Vegas and spends his life walking up to this temple of Hades. What it look like this in it today? Here's what it looks like today. Smoke spewing out, sulfur smells, and they would say, this is the gate to the underworld. We worship Hades here. We worship Pluto here. This is what the lifestyle of Pluto looks like. We bathe together. We sleep around. There's no faithfulness. There's no family. And he decides to plant right there in the midst of that and build a new kind of community. I'd be like, I'm going back to the gated community, thank you very much. But he wanted to be a community in the gates in this most difficult of places. He will die here. He will die here. In fact, they build a church just up the hill from that area called St. Philip Martitorium, where they will commemorate his death. And as we were there, we got to hear the story, and I had not heard the story before. But way back at that entrance, at the Heropolis Crucifixion Gate, is where they stringed him up. They took a piece of metal, and they went through the Achilles heel, and they chained him to the, to the gates. And they brought all seven of his daughters out right before him. And they said, will you deny this Jesus thing? Will you give up on this Christianity thing? Will you admit he was nothing more than just a man? Will you give it all up? He says, I can't. And so right before him, they rape, kill, and crucify his daughter just out of his reach. He can't quite get to her without ripping his Achilles heel out. And his daughter, church tradition says, said, Dad, don't deny. Stay strong. And he watched his daughter die. Then they did to his second daughter. And his third, and his fourth, and his fifth, his sixth, and his seventh. He decided that what Jesus, how real Jesus was, and the message of Jesus was worth bringing to the most chaotic of places. And he died affirming that Jesus was who he says he was. And he died bringing a message of hope to a, a world and a place of the world that was totally broken on every possible way you can imagine. And he modeled for his kids something that was so profound that they were willing to give their own lives up for it as well while living in Vegas. 
And you might say, well, I don't believe this whole thing. But boy, he did, didn't he? And if you don't think Jesus did something for you, the reason we're here today, the reason some of the Judeo-Christian values that inform our legal system, inform our medical system, our educational system, some of the ways in which we've been shaped as a culture is because a guy named Philip, a little kid from a little village who built on top of some city gates, had a starting gate question of who is Jesus, and he decided to storm the gates, the literal gates of hell. So the question I ask myself is this. If I'm going to shift from a gated community, it's always about protection, protection, to how do I be a community at the gates? What gates am I storming? This whole series has been about here, near, and far. We are a church that's trying to storm the gates. We're storming them here in our church. The, the, the gates of, of bitterness, the gates of self-centeredness, the gates of shame in my own life. I want to storm the gates and see some freedom come into my life and some forgiveness come into my life. It's here, but it's also near. What does it mean to serve in our city? It's also far. What does it mean to go to, to Belize? What does it mean to go to Cancun? What does it mean to work with orphans? What does it mean to rescue people who are in, in prostitution? How, what does it mean to provide education for those who don't have it? What does it mean to give away medical services? What does it mean to, to find my own talents and my own opportunities and, and leverage them against the needs in the world? What gates are we storming? And what might God do in your life if you say, boy, I don't want to do all that. <laughs> but if somebody did that for me, I've got to do something. I've got to start right here and right now. I'd like you to hear the story of somebody who's done just that. I'll invite uh, my friend Kip. Can we give Kip a warm welcome? Kim, come on up. Let me here, Kip. Now you guys come up too, if you want. Um, now, the last couple of weeks we've heard stories of folks going overseas. A lot of people are never going to go on a mission trip. That's like way out there. Um, that's too much. You have found um, that God wants you to do something to impact families and yourself right here in the church. Tell me about your journey the last couple of years and what God's called you to do. Well, I started here years ago, and I remember the week I just said, what do you want me to do? Where, where can I help? And they said, you know, infant to fourth grade, we've got an opening. I said, let's start. And, mm-hmm. uh, and since then, I've really done a lot of different things, and today I'm really excited to be doing a couple of things. I'm a rotating teacher in Fuel 56, and Fuel 56 is a bunch of fifth and sixth graders. And even during this service, there can be 40 of them looking up at me. And it's a great age because, as I say to them, if you can start to think about things right now in fifth and sixth grade, it's going to help you with that seventh and eighth and that high school. And we really try to tell them how special they are, mm-hmm. how God is going to be with you. And we really just try to give them some confidence. And, uh, and in fifth and sixth grade, they're still engaging. Sure. They're really listening. And I remember one time a girl came and said, hey, Mr. Kip, last week I went to school and I tried to do what you said. I tried to do the right thing. Versus what everyone else is doing, and it worked out okay. Mm. And so that is a great age to work with. And, uh, so and for many people, fifth and sixth grade, that sounds like the gates of hell right there. It sounds like a lot of people are thinking, like, oh, that's the gates of hell. I'm never going to think about that. So you've been drawn to that. And more than that, you wanted to impact dads and say, not just a one-time sunny thing, how do we impact a whole community that's beginning to live out these values? Yeah, so a couple of us dads a few years ago, we had some sons around that seventh, eighth, ninth grade coming up to that age. And we said, let's start something where we're going to get dads and their sons, or if, the, if the, the boy, some important man in their life, and we basically started helping them understand what a, being a real man is. So you get to that teenage year, what is a man? So we started to do that a few years ago, and it's been really fun to kind of bring them together over four weeks of classes, and it culminates out of a weekend out in the woods doing manly things. Mm-hmm. I was there. And, uh, yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. And you guys have been really supportive of that. And it's just a great time for these boys to kind of start to figure out what is a biblical definition of manhood, Mm-hmm. So it's great for the boys. It's also great for these fathers and these men to be a part of it the whole way through. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a wonderful journey. And we're going to try to keep doing that as well. Because uh, 
again, it's just neat to see how these boys start to kind of click in their head. Now around 13, 14 is a perfect mm-hmm. age to start doing that. Yeah. And then uh, the other thing I really am excited about, if I just keep going up in the ages here, uh, years ago uh, we started to work with Doug, Pastor Doug here, on a men's ministry on Tuesday mornings. And uh, this year it's called The Great Adventure of Manhood. And I love this because having understood in my own life the importance of men and understanding who I am as a father, a husband, and everything else, Doug's been doing this now his third year, and it's a bunch of us getting up early in the morning and learning about, again, what is it to be like a man? Mm-hmm. What does God want us to do? And guess what? We're all in this together. And to mm-hmm. see some of these men go, oh, I thought I was the only one with this problem. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, okay, wow. Why this work? All that kind of stuff. So there's a group of us, again, that just get coffee, set up the tables, greet people. And that's been another really fun thing that I've been mm-hmm. able to kind of get involved with with uh, Doug. Mm. I say over the years, I've just heard so many guys say, um, I've had very few guys say I had a good relationship with my dad. And so a lot of us don't have that thing to model. So you talk about a gates of hell or area in our life, which is I want something I didn't have with my dad, but I don't have any direction to do it. So I appreciate you taking the leadership to do that and certainly with our teenage boys as well. Well, it's a pleasure. And again, I just uh, trying to be available and a couple of these things have come along my way. So it's just been kind of fun to be a part of it. No, that's great. Well, I don't know what you're right here and right now is it might be here. It might be near. It might be far. But uh, during this next song, just really ask yourself, God, what are, what are the storm the gates I need to storm? And what does it mean to do it locally? I, I had a friend this week I had lunch with and he was uh, he's a medical guy. He's been on a couple of our uh, trips to Belize and he was meeting with a, a local guy who donates a lot of supplies for his company. Over on mission trips, they started about mission trips. And he said, uh, the guy from our church, Michael, turned to this friend and said, hey, have you ever gone on a mission trip? No, no, we send lots of supplies. He said, go. It's easy to write checks. Checks are important. But go. When you go, when you engage in these opportunities, God does something in your heart. And it's funny because uh, years ago I had Michael on stage. And uh, I said, Michael, in the last year you've gone from an agnostic or disinterested in spiritual things to being a missionary for the church. And he said, I guess I have. That's pretty cool. So I love that idea that all of us are on this journey and it's in these experiences that God might be asking you what it means for you to take a step out right here and right now. Can we thank Kip for his story? Kip, thanks. Appreciate it. Well, we do want to start right now. Some people think the Bible is about getting people to heaven, and that's part of it, but it's also about bringing heaven to earth. And bringing heaven to earth is about helping those that are hurting, saying, right now I'm going to do it. Right now I'm going to look for it. Right now I'm going to look for those gates. So I ask you as you go out today to say, God, maybe you're at the place you've got to wrestle with the question, who is Jesus? Start there. And if you've got that down, what does it mean? Before you get to heaven, what does it mean now to proclaim heaven on earth, as that Lord's Prayer says? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thanks for being here for our series, uh, Motor. It's our last week of it. We're starting next week a brand new series, and the series is called All I Want for Christmas. If you came prepared to give, you want to be part of serving, you can drop in those offering boxes in the, in the offering box on your way out. If you're new to Horizon, we'd love to say hey to you. Third door on your left, we'd love to put a name with a face. Say hi to some folks at the hearth room. Thanks for being here. We'll see you all next week.